Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts like today, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Hi, everybody. God, I'm just so honored to have our guest today. I was lucky enough to get to meet her in person, and I begged her to come on Atomic Moms. I was like, please, Dr. Joe, please come on Atomic Moms and share your wealth of information and your expertise. So thank you, Dr. Joe, for coming on the podcast early on a Saturday morning. I want to share your bio first for our listeners. So Dr. Olson Kennedy is the medical director of the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She is a world-renowned expert in adolescent medicine, specializing in the care of gender nonconforming children and transgender youth. She's been providing medical intervention for transgender youth and young adults, including puberty suppression and cross-sex hormones for the past decade. She's also been on 2020, The Dr. Phil Show, CNN, Dateline, The Doctors, and now, of course, Atomic Moms. (laughs) Hi, Dr. (laughs) Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being able to be here with you today. Well, I know you pour your heart and soul into your work, and you often burn the midnight oil. So again, thank you so much for coming on this Saturday morning. In our 30-minute conversation, I'm really hoping that you'll give us an overview of gender identity, you know, inform us on some of the challenges that trans youth face, the available treatments, and also give us some tools that all parents can use to create a more gender-inclusive community. So let's just start with the basics, though. Can you give us the 101 on gender identity? Absolutely. I think the um, understanding of all of the parts of our psychosexual self are often mixed up and conflated and and lack a lot of clarity um, because of the way that we sort of traditionally taught people about gender. And gender is really complex. So conceptually, and in our experiences as humans, it is inclusive of a lot of different elements, right? So there's, you know, the chromosomes, which people are born with, the sex chromosomes in specific, either um, some combination of X's and Y's. So but for most people, XX or XY, and for most people who have XX chromosomes, they go on to develop what we would call uh female reproductive tract organs, a uterus, ovaries, a vagina, vulva, and for people with XY chromosomes, the differentiation happens early on and there's the development of a penis and testicles and a scrotum. And that is true for most people with those particular chromosomal makeups. There are certainly people who have other than XX, other than XY, we're not going to really be talking about that. There may be some overlap, but that's that's not really what we're going to go into today. But beyond the development of people's reproductive tracks is their own internal sense of their gender or their gender identity. And what's difficult about gender identity is we don't really know as scientists where it lives or how it develops. We know that um, there are certainly have been humans throughout humans, <laughs> throughout the beginning of humans, who have 
a gender that doesn't necessarily correlate in the way that we would expect it to, given somebody's chromosomes and reproductive tract. And so if you look across all cultures, you will see there, there's evidence of people who identify as gender different than one we would expect, given their, their reproductive tract and their chromosomes. And when your gender identity, for example, if you are a typically developing female, for example, you have XX chromosomes, you have a uterus and ovaries and a vagina and a vulva, we would expect that you would have a female gender identity or an internal sense of being female. But that's not always true. And in the case of people who are transgender, they have a different gender identity than what you would expect from their chromosomes and their reproductive tract. And that probably happens. We don't know exactly why it happens, but I think as we get more and more evidence, we're going to have a better understanding that the sense of being male or female probably is located in the structures and the morphology and connectivity of the brain. But we don't know that for certain right now, which makes it difficult because I think whenever somebody develops in a non-traditional way, people want explanations for that. They want to have certainty and all of those things drive us as a society and as our as humans to want to find these answers that clarify that these things exist. And so that, that makes this work very hard because there's an additional element above and beyond the medical piece. And that's maybe I, I would call it the art of this work mm. and the, and the sort of understanding that, you know, there's no way to prove someone's gender. There's not a way for a trans person to prove it, but there's also not a way for someone around that person to prove it either. And, and that can be very challenging, especially when you're talking about moving forward with medical interventions. Mm-hmm. I think medical interventions scare people and, and we should be cautious of them. That's a very, you know, I think that's a very good way to approach things when we're making changes in bodies. On the other hand, I think uncertainty can sometimes be a barrier for people moving forward and getting what they need. So our Gender identity is also not the same as our sexuality or our romantic proclivities and interests. And this is another place where this idea of who we feel we are inside our internal self gets conflated a lot of times with who we're interested in being around, either sexually or romantically. And even though these elements are very different from each other, they also intersect, which is very confusing for a lot of people, right? So we've spent a lot of time trying to get people to understand that gender identity and sexuality, sexual behavior, sexual interest, or romantic interest are different entities. They do intersect, and especially for folks in the trans community, because there's a lot of different kind of negotiation of bodies and intimate spaces that happens for people. So I think keeping all these elements of our selfhood sort of distinct and on their own, but also understanding that they all uh, intersect in in places in people's lives is a really important thing to remember. Because you just said this about sexuality and how it intersects with gender, can sexuality change over time? Like, I'm wondering also with our gender, if that can change over time. Does that make sense? That's a... 
Yes, it makes it makes a lot of sense, and and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. I'm not sure that it is actually our gender or our sexuality or our romantic proclivities that are changing, but our understanding of them. Interesting, or maybe the acceptance, the social acceptance as well. Social acceptance and exposure. Mm-hmm. I think that that a lot of people are are, and these are certainly two different things, right? Are if around gender is that we don't have adequate language. And so what, where I think people can come to understand their gender is, is hindered by the fact that we have very limited lexicon in the world of gender. And I'm so grateful to our young people who are making that so much more expansive by creating new language, using new language, defining new terms, and coming up with a whole new lexicon is much more nuanced and much more appropriate in its reflection of people's experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really great because I think then people will have an opportunity to really look through more than two things, male and female. Right. right? And so what happens so often is that people feel really restricted by that. And they say, I don't know what that means or the way that, and this gets, this gets very complicated because our gender expression or the way that we communicate our gender in the world to other people is also part of not only how we participate in the societal expectations around gender, but it's also reflective of our own authentic experience around gender. And imagine how complex that is if you really begin to think about that and unravel all of those things. So we have a combination of stereotypical gendered behavior that has arisen out of probably the roles around childbearing and childrearing, right? They, those were probably the things that in many ways defined or started to shape our stereotypes about gender, and they get repeated over and over again through time, which gives them some sort of sense of being real, which they may or may not be as our society experiences and changes its ideas of child rearing, those stereotypes change as well. So let's talk gender reveal parties. (laughs) Let's start at the beginning. You know, I was surprised, Dr. Joe, my OBGYN, when you find out the gender, they've got these magnets that you put on the board and, you know, there's seven magnets in July because those are the seven births that she's expecting in July. And they were, they gave us a pink pen. And I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> like already? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that so, for a second. Yeah. And I mean, wouldn't, I mean, there'd be there's a couple of, of things that happen. You know, we begin to build stories about our children before they're even out of us or out of our partners. When we find out information about, or if we find out information about chromosomes, anatomy, while somebody is in utero. And and really what we're, if we could sort of reorganize the way that we think about that information, like, oh, I have, um, I'm having a baby with XX chromosomes. And we could do that with objectivity and without layering on expectations around gender with those particular chromosomes. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and, maybe, and maybe it just doesn't make sense to 
get that information early. Like, for mm. example, when I was pregnant, I didn't get that information. I wanted information on health. Oh, right? man. Is my, do, I have, do I have a healthy baby? That was what I was preoccupied with because I think spending, you know, an additional many, many months making gender stories about your unborn child is not particularly useful. And it's particularly unuseful. I don't think that's a word, but it's particularly useless <laughs> if your kid is ends up trans, right? So, right. So, so let's think about what that means to build gender stories, right? We, in addition to the society, we layer on our own ideas of what it's going to mean to have a daughter and what it's going to mean to have a son. And we build our stories, future hopes and dreams and expectations for that child in the context of that, that, that gender that's assigned. And, and of course we do. Of course we do, because that's the world we live in. We live in a cisgender, which is non-trans, normative environment, because most people aren't trans. The vast majority of people are not trans. They're cisgender. And so it, it makes, it's not illogical that we have created and have wound up and participate in a cis-normative environment. Mm-hmm. That's that's the majority of people's developmental trajectories. The, the challenge comes when somebody has a gender that's different than what was assigned to them, and they have to now follow a path that is not laid out in front of them. So for people who are listening that are not trans, you probably have very little experience or memory of how you came to know your gender. You don't really have a memory of that because everything is created so that you have an understanding that your gender matches your reproductive track. Mm. And so you don't have a conscious memory of making those decisions of, oh yes, my gender is female. And because that was the way that, Everything was expected to develop. But if you don't have a gender that matches, then your own pathway to understanding that, you have to carve yourself. There's no, you know, you don't read stories, for example. There are no Disney stories about people who have, who develop a gender that's different than their assigned sex. Do you think that, is it damaging to say girl power and all that stuff? No, okay. no. Okay. Not at all. We still live in a very patriarchal and misogynistic society. Okay. Absolutely <laughs> saying that. Okay. Because I was like, oh, I'm putting so much gender pressure on my my two daughters because I went to a women's college and I'm like, ah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but but the, the the irony about that is that you know feminism and understanding you know the value of gender equity is actually quite compatible with trans experience. Okay. It's just talking about that very thing, right? That is like we we need to look at people as humans. We need to we need to understand and recognize and celebrate their strengths and lift people up around their weaknesses. And that goes for everybody. And we've really done a good job with that with white men. <laughs> we <haven't laughs> really done a good job around any other people. And so that all of this true, right? We need to keep talking about this um, for all people, all humans. At age four, my daughter Sabrina will, you know, she's coming home from school going like, girls rule, boys drool. It's, they've started Mm -hmm. to 
separate themselves based on gender on the playground. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering for mothers, let's say I'm a mother of a preschooler who's showing signs of being transgender, like what would those signs be? And, And how would I know whether this is just exploration or if this is really pointing us in the direction of another path that we'll be taking? I think this is a really important question. And I think it's also uh, not important. (laughs) (laughs) And here's why. I think that for kids that are in that age group, exploration is, is really common. And it's also very common that people are doing what we might have historically or traditionally called cross-gender behavior. And I think what is critical is that it's an interesting thing. If you have somebody that you, you see and, and have been, you know, in your life as your daughter and, and that young person wants to play sports or wear pants, we don't get terribly riled up about that. Right. We don't have particularly strong feelings about that because our societal latitude for, lots of different expression is different for assigned girls. But if we have somebody that we perceive as our son and and that young person wants to wear dresses or loves princesses or wants to paint their nails or do those things that we would typically expect assigned girls to do, then people start to get worried and red flags go up and oh my gosh, do I have is my kid gay? And okay, so first of all, what's underlying that is homophobia. But um, the other piece is that because we know that it's much more likely if your person that is male appearing in their, let's say, hairstyle or their name goes out in girls' clothes, that there will be a different level of judgment than there will be if you have a kid who's assigned female and wants to wear boys' clothes, quote unquote, I guess. I'm gendering clothing, but Mm -hmm. this is just real and the way that people interact in the world. And so there's a very, and, and why is that important? That's so important because it is the earliest indicator that we have a very different societal, uh, feelings about trans masculine and trans feminine experiences. And that's really important because that's going to play a role as people get older. But for kids in that age group, it's less important to understand what this is, where this is all going to land or shake out than it is to understand how is my kid going to feel the most comfortable and the most loved. Mm-hmm. That is 100% our goal with all children around all things. We're not going to accidentally make kids trans by supporting them. If they're not trans, they're going to they're gonna move out of that. But it's very important that we meet them where they are, right? And so is a young person like, uh, does your son, who you think is your son, and, and most likely is, want to wear dresses? Well, then what does that mean? Let's, let's figure that out. How, that's, there's nothing at all problematic about that, except when it comes to the interaction of the outside world with that kid. Right. And so, you know, if a kid wants to wear different clothes that might be unexpected, it's all about like, okay, well, let's, let's, look, there's nothing wrong with wearing dresses. And let's think about what could, 
what you might possibly hear or who might possibly have a problem with that. And let's make sure that kid knows that it is about that other person. Oh, this is so good. So Dr. Joe, what could a mother say to her four-year-old who wants to go out of the house in a dress to school, let's say? I think that is going to be hugely dependent on where that family is geographically. Right. Because there are significant differences in people who live in Santa Monica than people who live in even Riverside. Right. And so there's different um, and and it will. So for someone who has, you know, a, a ostensibly male child who wants to wear dresses, it's about, okay, if you know that you're in an environment where people are going to be supportive, and the good thing is, the reality is that the good thing is most people are not that thrown off by little, little kids doing this. That's mm-hmm. why they have a dress-up box in preschool, because they yeah. know that lots and lots of kids want to try on different things, and all of that is great, and it makes people happy and comfortable. It's the, it, it's the reaction of other people that becomes problematic for that child, and and very, it's a very delicate balance for parents because parents want to make sure that their children are safe, but they yeah. don't want to give their children a message of who you are is not okay. Right? So it's, you know, it's like, look, let's talk about the 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 fact that most people, most boys don't wear dresses, right? And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It just means that most people don't. And and humans are not very good at diversity. <laughs> they just aren't. And so having a developmentally or age-appropriate conversation about that is really important. And and if you're going to or you sense that your son is going to get a lot of negative feedback in certain environments, like let's say church, maybe you say, okay, here's, here's what I want to um, – here's what I want to talk to you about. I want to, I, I anticipate that maybe some people aren't used to boys in dresses and that might be, that might end up landing on you. And I don't want that to happen. It, but I think it's really also important that kids know parents are going to have their back. And so if that does happen, that that mom or that dad or that non-binary parent is going to choose that kid's health and well-being, over-preserving a relationship with anyone else, a church, a school, that kid has to know that they're first. Because the, the single most damaging thing that happens to children is feeling like my parent is going to side with someone else in the message of who I am is not okay. Dr. Joe, you're making me cry. <laughs> um, uh, um <clears throat> So without a supportive parent, you know, the rates of suicide, homelessness, addiction, and abuse skyrocket. At some point, some of these children realize that they want to socially transition and then they want to medically transition. What resources are out there for them? And and what can the rest of us do to, to help these young people who whose parents have abandon them. Yeah, it's uh it's it's always more difficult when somebody does not have a supportive family, but I I also want people to understand that the experience of gender dysphoria, which is different than the experience of being trans. 
So being trans means you have a, broadly speaking, of gender that's different than the assignment of your sex at birth. So gender dysphoria is the associated distress that people experience about that. So that's really important because there's a difference between pathologizing somebody's developmental trajectory and or their identity as a trans person and saying there is distress associated with this experience for a lot of people. And that's the piece that we are trying to mitigate with medical intervention, surgical intervention, social transition. Maybe it's just a name and pronoun change. Maybe it's just a haircut. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the spaces that it's really important for providers who work with young people to have conversations about, you know, what are the things that you think might make your life easier? Let's talk about what can and can't be done. These are all really important things. And it's also really important to have conversations with young people about, look, there's lots of ways to do your gender. There isn't, it's as big of a mistake to push somebody into a trans binary as to put, keep continuing to perpetuate a gender essentialist binary mm-hmm. of if you have these genitals, you're this gender, right? It's, it's also not, we don't need to do it and go backwards, but for people without resources, this is really important. I want to talk about this because What's been exciting over the last 10 years is to watch the numbers of clinics around the country, because when I started, there probably were only five, three to five places in the entire country that were doing youth care. And part of this had to do with, it really is only a rather new thing that people have started to understand trans adults started as trans kids, which completely makes sense, but I don't, I don't know why that was really difficult for people. And there was also a pervasive, <laughs> there's a pervasive ideology that you could make somebody have a different gender if you got to them early enough. Right. Well, that's, that's also not true. Right. So, no, so um, steeped in shame. So now there are, there's, yeah. yeah, there's probably between 30 and 40 places around the country, which is still a really small number. And and I think about this, that in our, we have a very, very, perhaps the largest youth clinic in the country, and we p- probably put in around 300 new young people every year into our clinic at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Um, and we are currently have an active patient load of between 11 and 1200 kids. And When I say that, it sounds magnificent and glorious, but the reality is that in the city of Los Angeles, there are 2.6 million children, 18 and under, that are under 18. 2.6 million children in our more recent prevalence rates of of gender um, being other than cisgender, so some trans experience, is between about... 0.8 0.8 and 1.4%. So even if you say 1%, that's 26,000 kids in the city of Los Angeles who might have trans identities, right? And and then it doesn't seem like we're doing a lot of work when you think about it that way. And so I I, I think that it's, you know, our clinic has grown faster than we have the capacity to 
support it. We desperately need resources. I think most people doing this work need resources. There needs to be um, an increased narrative. Shows like this are amazing because even simple things like talking to your four and five and six-year-old, it doesn't have to be a major sit-down discussion. Even little things where you just check your own normative bias, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, Oh, isn't it interesting how, you know, everybody has like a a gender marker on their medical chart? Like what if they, you know, were identified as a boy or something else? Like what if they didn't feel like a girl? What do you think would happen? Like how would they feel? You know, just little things like that, right? When I take her to the bathroom. Yeah. Male or female. I mean, this is what with my kid, I, you know, my kid early on is like, well, how do you tell someone's a boy or a girl? And I said, well, you ask them. And and so and that's actually is and actually great. a very very easy thing, yeah. you know, to teach children so that they then also can move move forward and and teach their friends that right. So now I my kid teaches, you know, other friends like no, you you you're mistaken. You've been taught that you look at or assume somebody's genitals or you look at their social presentation and assume their their gender, but that's not true because it's as we know it right now, subjective telling. Right. right. And, it's a, and it's about the self-identity. <laughs> and what I love about sharing this with our children is saying, you know, let's not make assumptions about other people. Let's ask them. And also for ourselves, this isn't just about gender, but in, in all the ways that we're living, like what is my self-identity versus what are the labels mm-hmm. other people have put on me? And like, mm-hmm. because you're right, like I, it's really intense to think about the way we are raised and all of the assumptions that we have to work around from other people or the ways that mm-hmm. we mold ourselves to be accepted by others versus mm-hmm. taking a moment. I mean, this is probably why people go on crazy, like eat, pray, love <laughs> trips like to realize <laughs> to be like no wait a minute everybody like what is my self identity like what am i yeah. what feels right to me versus mm-hmm. what what have i been doing just to like make things easier for other people or just yes. so i don't uh stir the pot or you know in in ways of managing other people's personalities like our own parents yeah it's crazy yeah it's cool because well, you're like, it's really our sad kids can... we all perpetuate a sort of fake veneer of society. Right. And that's, and that's not good for any of us. No. So you said 1% potentially are transgender. So that means. So the in... Williams, so the yeah. Williams Institute has, has really worked hard to try and figure out the answer to this question. At the end of the day, we really need a census question. Mm. We need a census question that says, is there anyone in your household that identifies as a gender different than their assigned sex at birth? One question, and we could actually get a prevalence number. Of course, we're going to miss sometimes where there are kids who are not out or not, you know, there's not safety for them to come out. But I think we would get a better idea Mm -hmm. for sure. And so that means that in schools, 1% of the population at your kid's school could be it could be transgender or non-binary. Is that right? Or is, or yes. transgender? Okay. Yes. What's the best way to educate our children 
And and if we see a student who is transitioning socially, what is the conversation we can be having with our kids? And also, like, is it weird to go up to that parent and say something supportive? Like, what do you do? Like, I don't think it's it's ever a problem to say something supportive. Okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I think that there, that maybe what people's interpretation of what is supportive there might be you go. problematic. Ooh, that's right. right. Yeah, totally. So I think if you have a relationship with somebody and you know them and their kid, you are, are watching a process or your kid is telling you something about that kid. You know, I think you have, you have a lot of, um, there's a, there's a history and there's a basis for you saying, Oh, I, I just, I heard about what's going on with your kid and I, I'm really excited for you. It must be amazing that your kid shared this really special and personal thing with you. Mm-hmm. And it excites me that you're supporting your child. Oh, that's great. It excites me that you're supporting your child. It's so good. I think the problem is that people who don't have experience, that don't have a trans kid or don't know anything about this, what ends up happening is they burden the family with educating them. Mm. And it's not the obligation of either the young person or the parents to educate people. That's, I mean, they can choose to do that, but they're not obligated to. And a lot of times they feel obligated to because of precisely what you were saying, which is we want to take care of other people so that we don't look bad. Yeah. You know, we want, oh, yes, I got to defend my, you know, and you don't. You don't have to ever defend your position of supporting your child. Right. That's that's always defendable, right? That goes without saying. I choose my child. I choose, I choose my, my child. child. And, and and that's how 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 are we going to make people defend that? That's mm-hmm. that's ludicrous. Are there resources for let's say preschools or elementary schools for the directors of the schools so that they can do their best? Is that a conversation that should be had with the kids like in the classroom at all or no? Sometimes, and I highly recommend, like a lot of schools now have already experienced this. Uh They have gotten education, but if a school is new to this or they want additional ongoing support, they should contact either our center or the Los Angeles Gender Center. And we always have people that will go into schools and do faculty education and parent education. I've done a lot of local work where I've met with faculty and then I've met with parents and then even met with the whole student body to talk about gender. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's people certainly shouldn't try and take a go at this if they don't, if they're not familiar with this process, because it's too easy to let your own biases get in the way. And, and if you don't have education, then you're very likely to do harm. In your attempt to protect your your student. With the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development, I was really impressed and surprised to learn about the puberty blocking hormones. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can share a little bit about that, because as our parents, you know, reach the puberty age of their children, like this is something that's really important to be aware of. So I think that, you know, it was quickly realized that some of the most challenging things that are contributing to gender dysphoria or distress for trans folks is the development of secondary sex characteristics that um, don't match. So 
many of these things that happen are permanent changes. So puberty induces permanent changes. I can't state this enough because people don't sometimes think about it this way. But if you get an Adam's apple, it's not going to go away even if you take cross-sex hormones. You have to have it surgically removed. If your voice drops in puberty, your voice is never going to go back up again unless you modulate it yourself, which is a lot of work, or you have vocal cord surgery. Once you grow chest tissue or breast, those aren't going to go away unless you have them removed. So it really was the Dutch who proposed this idea of, hey, if we could delay or avoid the development of secondary sex characteristics, we might give people um, an opportunity to have less distress about this and avoid future surgeries. And and additionally, blockers are um, reversible. So if somebody starts puberty at 10 and they go on a blocker, they're too young really to start hormones because they're not, that's not when, that's not pure concordant for them. So they have this opportunity to be on blockers and be free of the idea of developing a body that they, they don't resonate with, that feels really harming, harmful for them and be able to have function and participate in discussions and, and, get a better understanding of what it means to walk as a trans person in the world and, and the, the details of that. And it's not like people can choose to not be trans, but they certainly can choose not to pursue interventions. And, and I don't, that's not what I'm suggesting or recommending, but I mean, I think that when we talk about choice, we need to be clear about what we're talking about. So puberty blockers are a reversible intervention that gives young people and families some space. And and part of why they're important is because a lot of young people are coming out in puberty. Most people are not coming out in early childhood. I can't stress that enough. Most people are coming out around the beginning or middle of puberty because the pubertal development is driving the distress. Mm. Dr. Joe, how can we support the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development and your work? Where where can we donate? Oh, that would be wonderful. We are accepting all and any donations of any amount because we really need to make sure that we have a foundation of support for all of our young people. You can um, give people my contact information. They can call Children's Hospital Los Angeles directly and say that they want to make a directed donation to the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development. All of those things would be wonderful. We could sure use the help in supporting folks who don't have support and even supporting parents who are supporting their kids. So so it also includes therapy. What, what do you all provide? Yeah, there's a huge problem with mental health support because the structure, there there are a growing but still very limited number of people who are familiar with and very um, good at doing this mental health work with gender dysphoria. And so people, a lot of people do not have access to what they need around mental health support, either before or during transition. And so we are desperately trying to build up our mental health support. We do have therapists, psychologists, PhD psychologists, clinical psychologists, and social workers and psychiatry in our program, but it's not accessible to everyone because we, we have 1,200 kids and 
not that many providers. <laughs> so we're trying to build our workforce so that people can get everything that they need in one building. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Joe. In closing, I'm curious, you know, you've spent over a decade doing this. And obviously you've seen some big changes happening um, with the rest of us starting to catch up with this work. And I'm wondering, what are your hopes for the next decade? And also, what are we not talking about that we should be? Ooh, um, let me try to answer that in two minutes or less. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm hoping two things. I'm hoping that we can just create societally a better environment for people that is more loving and open and accepting. And honestly, if somebody's um, trajectory of development is different from your own, it really actually doesn't impact your own <laughs> personal <laughs> space. And so your feelings and opinions about it are largely irrelevant, but they can be very helpful if they're kind. And we could, if we just all could say, you do you, and I'm going to be kind about it and honor that and respect it and celebrate it, uh, we're going to live on a better planet, for sure. I think that would be really helpful. I also think that people being able to get timely and appropriate care with skilled providers, no matter where you are, is really important. I think that um, having to get on a plane to go get care related to your gender is not okay. I think that's really problematic, and it also means that disparity is developing for people who are not resourced in that way. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that not just our sort of attitude about gender changes and becomes more flexible, and that we uh, we can come to understand as a society that trans youth and trans adults are actually making it better for all of us. These getting rid of our rigid ideas of the way people should be according to whatever belief system or morality or whatever is not really relevant to actual human experiences and development. We need to understand that there are all kinds of trajectories of development and everybody deserves to have opportunity. Well, Dr. Joe, I will let you go. Thank you so much. It was so cool. Thank you. If you ever want me to do a follow-up, let me know. Oh, yeah. Oh, believe me, you're going to get sick of me. But I know you're a very, 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 very busy person. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, I'm going to have additional resources available at AtomicMoms.com. If you haven't had a chance yet, check out Nanette on Netflix. It is a stand-up special with the queer stand-up comic Hannah Gadsby. And it's sort of, I mean, it starts out as a stand-up special and then it kind of turns into a TED Talk and it's incredible and it's so powerful. And I think it really elevates the conversation on everything that we talked about today regarding gender and the way that we present ourselves. Uh, I can't wait to hear your thoughts. So comment on Instagram and I'll get back to you. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. <laughs>